Let's pray. Lord, we love to be with your people, and we love to see folks who haven't been here in a while return. Lord, we pray that you would bring all the sheep of Calvary Bible Church back into the fold soon, just because we miss them. Help us, Father, to be faithful to reach out and to serve and to bless. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity now to think about some very practical things that I pray will inspire us to pursue change in our hearts and in our behavior, not only this week, but in the weeks to come. We confess, Lord, that we are dependent upon you. We don't always feel our dependence. It's times like this that we often do. And so, Father, we pray that we would not miss the benefit of the trials that we are facing just now. And Father, help us to be models of what it means to trust in your promises of future grace. Lord, I pray especially for uh, the marriages in this church. I pray that you would strengthen us as we will be talking about that today and over the next few weeks. Lord, I pray that there would be real reformation in the lives of your people as needed and that all of us would be appropriately introspective with regard to how husbands love their wives and how wives respect their husbands and how children obey and how parents lead and, and how we respond to our bosses in the workplace and to our employees. Lord, I pray that in all of these ways we would be evidently glorifying Christ and all of it to his great glory and, of course, as you have planned it, our own joy. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking at several passages this morning, and um, I want to start with our text that I intended to unpack starting today, and we kind of will be doing that over the next few weeks, although I'm altering the plan a little bit. Uh, and so a little different approach this morning, if you wouldn't mind reading the scriptures a little early, uh, stand with me and we will read Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 18. Colossians 3, beginning with verse 18. And by the way, it's, it's just interesting that uh, Paul's thoughts here end in verse 1 of chapter 4. And uh, I don't know why that is true, and no one in history is sure why that's true. But um, clearly it belongs in chapter 3, as we'll see here in just a second. And so, uh, verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Christ. 
for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Chapter 4, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fair, fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can go ahead and be seated. Well, clearly Paul is continuing his call to change in the Christian life. We have learned that the gospel brings us not only a new relationship with Jesus, it also brings us a new relationship with sin and a new relationship with virtue. And the text we just read then calls for a change in in how we relate to people, how we relate and interact with uh, those who are who are most closely in our daily proximity, namely our family members and those with whom we share a common vocation or we show up to work with them every day, whether we are the employee or whether we are the employer. Paul covers all of it. And you'll see in your bulletin that there are three, uh, there's a three-point outline that reflects the flow of thought here in Colossians chapter 3, but it occurred to me after I sent this to be printed, that since we find ourselves kind of pushing the reset button on church, as it were, since sending off uh, our new church plant the way we have, it, it might be a good time to linger over the important topics that in this text Paul is just kind of mentioning. Uh, I looked back to see when was the last time I taught on, this, on these subjects, and uh, best I can tell... Uh, at least the most thorough treatment was in, in our exposition of Ephesians, which took place in 2005. So it's, it's been quite a while since then. I know we've done some other things in Sunday school. But for the next few weeks, I, I want to preach a series of messages on these very practical issues, namely a wife's submission, a husband's leadership, some iteration of biblical parenting that I'm not sure what I'm going to do with yet, and, and then taking the gospel to work. What, what does it mean to be a Christian at work? Today, then, I, I want us to narrow down on, narrow our focus for this message by addressing the issue that Paul first mentions, not only here in Thessalonians, but also in the text that we had read this morning Uh, to begin the service, and that is Ephesians chapter 3. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6. And so that's where we're going for uh, the next several weeks. Now, for nearly as long as there have been male and female humans on the earth, which has been a pretty long time, there has been what might be called gender warfare. In my early years, I remember it being called by my parents the battle of the sexes. We don't use that phrase very much anymore, but it it works. Throughout the ages, men have sought dominance and power over women, and women have sought to be liberated from male oppression, hence the women's liberation movement, which exists in modernized forms with new names today. It would be beneficial at this point to have you turn with me to chapter Three of Genesis, because I want to I go all the way back to the beginning. I want to talk about the origin of marriage. 
or at least the purpose of marriage. We don't have time to look at every facet of this. But as you know, in chapter 3, in the beginning, God created man and woman. Um, There was no battle of the sexes. The book of Genesis tells us that God created man out of the dust of the ground and stamped him with God's own image. He then created woman out of the body of the man to be his helper, a helper suitable. She too bore the image of God, the very likeness of God, and was equal to her her husband in value, in intellect, in creativity, and in moral capacity. In fact, the Genesis account affirms this equality when it says in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, they created him. So what he says in the third statement, male and female, he created them, applies to the first two statements, namely, that God created them in his own image and repeated in a different way, in the image of God he created them. And what do we learn from this? What we learn here is that both men and women display the glory of God's image with equal brilliance. This is consistent with God's intention stated in verse 26, where he says, and... Uh, listen to the personal pronoun, and let them rule. Not just let him rule, but let them rule. Nevertheless, while the man and woman were created as equal in value and purpose, there can be no doubt that there are, in the mind of God, intended differences. Men and women are different by design. If you haven't figured that out yet, Um, I'm sorry. (laughs) Our culture needs to refigure that out. And these differences reflect the unique roles God has established for men and women as they relate to one another in the church and in the home. As in any established institution, someone has to lead and others follow. Otherwise, there's disorder and chaos, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes which is exactly where we find our society going today. It's interesting. I sometimes like to listen to S. Lewis Johnson, who's been with the Lord for a long time, and his preaching was in the 1980s, 70s, and 80s. And uh, it's amazing as he preaches over uh, these same books that I'm, I'm preaching through, how he practically talks about the same issues in play in the culture back in his day. This has always been a problem. It's always been a problem. And so, who leads and who follows? Someone has to lead and someone has to follow. In the case of the original couple, Adam and Eve, the man was to lead and his wife was to serve as his helper. As you know, this perfect arrangement worked beautifully in the Garden of Eden, at least for a little while. We know there was perfect trust and unity because God says in chapter 2, verse 28, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was nothing between them. There was nothing to keep them from experiencing complete intimacy 
without fear or shame or bitterness. There was no division. But all of that was to change when Satan inserted himself into the relationship. Appealing to Eve's God-given appetites, the serpent enticed her to doubt God's word, to doubt God's character. In Genesis 3, 6, we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This was the fruit that God had forbidden. And this is the fruit about which he told them, on the day you eat it, you will surely die. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of that and what's going on there in that part of the Genesis account, but what I want to highlight is the change that occurred between the man and the woman when sin intruded into their relationship. Now, this gets really practical because if you're struggling in your marriage, it is because of the same problem. There is sin. And so we read in, in, Gen uh, in Genesis 3, 8 through 13, follow along with me. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, Well, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And after this, God curses the serpent, verses 14 and 15. And then he talks to the woman about the consequences of her sin. And we read in verse 16, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now listen carefully. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so the question is, what does he mean when he says your desire will be for your husband? Well, many of you already know the answer to this question. You already know that the same word for desire, you will desire your husband, is used again in the very next chapter. The Lord was warning Cain in chapter 4, verse 7, about his temptation to harm his brother, which he would do. He would kill Abel. And the Lord knew it was coming and he warned Cain, and here is part of God's warning to Cain. He says in chapter 4, verse 7, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire, same word, its desire is for you, but you must master it. In other words, 
Sin desires to master you. Sin desires to rule you. Sin desires to control and undermine you. In the same way, now that sin has entered Eve's heart, she will discover within herself a natural inclination to undermine her husband's authority to get what she wants, to have it her way. And of course, his response will be to sinfully tighten his grip of authority and control over her. Ladies and gentlemen, behold the origin of the battle of the sexes. This is where it all began. And where there had been perfect peace and unity, now there was guilt and shame and hospitality, not hospitality, hostility. And blame shifting. And here lies the core of all relational problems between men and women, especially husbands and wives. The amazing thing, however, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the Spirit and the Word, offers us the power to restore this broken relationship between men and women, and all Christian relationships for that matter. In Christ, in Christ, we now have restored capacity to image forth the glory of God in relationships of joy-filled, mutually satisfying, Christ-exalting, gospel-saturated authority and submission in male and female relationships. Paradise lost can be paradise regained. It's one of the reasons that the pastoral staff here and their wives do so much counseling. We believe this. We believe it can be fixed. What is broken in your marriage and in your home can be fixed. Beloved, this is why Jesus came to die. He came to deal with sin. He came to remedy sin and, and all of its effects. Well, I think you have a blank page in your bulletin, so here's a new outline. Number one, the purpose of marriage. And then toward the end here, we'll talk about the practice of marriage, and I'll remind you of that point, but the purpose of marriage. So let's shift gears a little here and, and turn to Paul's New Testament letter uh, to the Ephesians, shall we? This will be Ephesians chapter 6. This is the passage that Randy read for us this morning. And look at verses 22 through 33. I'm sorry, this is Ephesians 5, not 6. We'll get to 6 in a couple of weeks. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior, now the church submits to Christ, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Uh, let's just stop there. When we get to the book of Colossians, there's only one statement. And I'll point that out here in just a moment. 
But in any case, here in Ephesians, Paul offers a beautiful exposition of God's purpose for marriage. And the great fallacy of our day as it relates to marriage is that marriage is first and foremost about personal fulfillment. That's not primarily what it's about. Let's pick up where we left off. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present to the church, he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now listen to verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am speaking in reference to Christ and his church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here is Paul telling us the purpose for marriage. And the purpose for marriage here, in this purpose as stated by him, there is not the pursuit of personal fulfillment. It is something else. This is not what God had in mind when he created marriage. Rather, God created marriage to be a living parable of Christ's relationship to his church. We see this all the way through the text. Let me just hit the highlights, verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, verse 24. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 29, no one ever hated his own body but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And verse 32, this mystery is profound and I am speaking in reference to the church and Christ. And beloved, this is important because it tells us what the established roles in marriage are supposed to accomplish in marriage. Namely, are you ready? The purpose of marriage is to set on physical and visible display the glory of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. The purpose of marriage is to set on physical and visible display the glory of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. Being created in the image of God means that we were made to show the world what Christ is like, what God is like, and what his gospel is like. This is the mystery Paul refers to in verse 32, that God did not create union with Christ and his church as a reflection of human marriage. Let me say it again. He did not create union with Christ to be a reflection of marriage, like, it, like, like he created marriage first, and, and, and chronologically, that's true, and then identified it in the word of God as 
Christ's relationship with the church. It's exactly the opposite. He created marriage to reflect the glory of Christ and his church, which means he determined that before the creation of the world. You see, beloved, this is why there are established roles in marriage. In marriage. Elaborating on this point of Paul's teaching, John Piper explains, listen carefully to this, this is, this is helpful. The inference Paul draws from this mystery is that the roles of husband and wife in marriage are not arbitrarily assigned, but are rooted in the distinctive roles of Christ and his church. Those of us who are married need to ponder again and again how mysterious and wonderful it is that God grants us in marriage the privilege to image forth stupendous divine realities infinitely bigger and greater than ourselves. You have a purpose in life. And there is a glorious purpose for your marriage. You see, beloved, Jesus is glorified by the magnificent reality of his marriage to the church, but the world can't see it. It's too big, it's too otherworldly, it's too abstract, it's too mysterious, it's even foolishness in their eyes. Therefore, God has ordained that his glory be clearly on display before them whenever they happen to get a glimpse of a Christian marriage. When people see how wives relate to their husbands in the Lord and how husbands relate to their wives in the Lord, they should say, is that that is beautiful that is glorious that is so different ladies people ought to be able to look at you and how you relate to your husband and say that is really something I'm not sure what it is but it's something there's substance there she loves her husband in ways that I've rarely ever seen. I wish I had a marriage like that. And maybe her God really is someone I should get to know. You say, isn't that wishful thinking? How about this? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your God who is in heaven, your Father. And so we believe, therefore, that the Bible teaches that the husband is to model the loving, sacrificial leadership of Christ. We'll talk about him next week. And the wife is to model the glad submission offered freely to Christ by his church. Do you know why you are here this morning? You have come in submission to Christ. You are his bride. And he has said, Meet with me. Every Lord's Day, meet with me. And here we are. Here we are. And here we love to be. And by the way, in verse 23 of Ephesians 5, 
Paul points out that Christ is not only the head of the church, he is also her savior. Now, I don't think he's saying that the husband is in some way the wife's savior. Rather, I think that Paul is just pointing out that even Jesus, who was the head, took on the role of a servant. Throughout eternity past, the son always was subordinated himself to the father. And that submission, that is true submission. And even as the head of the church, he ranked himself under the church, serving her in order to save her. His salvation didn't come without ranking himself under us. Now, that's not the model that Paul is appealing to. He's appealing to the church's relationship with Christ. But I think Paul is telling wives, listen, this is a command of Christ, to be sure, to submit to your husbands. But he is not commanding you to do anything that he himself was unwilling to do to the extreme. His role as servant was a glorious role. In fact, Paul tells us that for this reason, God highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2. Why? Well, according to this passage, why was Jesus lifted it up? Lifted up? Because he humbled himself to the role of a servant. And so look at your Savior, ladies. The one who is calling you to serve is the one who has served you and serves you every day. When the church submits to Christ, she is only responding to the Lord in kind. And it is a beautiful thing. That's the high calling calling of every Christian wife, to serve as a living, breathing model of the church that takes its cues from the model of Christ himself. This is God's purpose of marriage. It is designed to reflect the glory of Christ's relationship with his church. Does it? Does your marriage reflect the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and, and the church's relationship with Christ. This is God's purpose for marriage. And much, much more could be said. And that's what preachers say when they run out of material on that point. Um, let's just get real practical here. Let's talk about the practice of submission. In Colossians 1.18, the passage I intended to be talking about right now, he simply writes, wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord, in the Lord. Now, Paul, in the book of Colossians, cannot get himself off of union with Christ. He says the same thing to children. In the Lord. This is a lordship issue, by the way. In fact, we don't have time to look at it this morning, but I forget how many times, and maybe I didn't count, but I highlighted them in my notes again and again and again as I was studying it, how many times... Paul refers in this section in Colossians to the Lord, the Lord, in the Lord, because of the Lord, to the Lord, in the Lord. All of these are lordship issues. 
How do we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves as the master of this relationship, or do we see ourselves as the slaves, the servants? The parallel passage again in Ephesians 5.22 reads, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But what is submission? Again, John Piper and Wayne Grudem are really helpful to give us a definition here. I think it's an accurate biblical definition. And here it is. And if you can't write it down, you can pick it up online. Submission, maybe just listen to this. Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help him carry it through according to her gifts. As God said when he created woman, she is his suitable helper. I'll say it one more time. Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help him carry it through according to her gifts. As God said when he created woman, she is his suitable helper. Now the Greek word for submissive, be submissive, in the Bible never means mutual submission. Never means mutual submission between a husband and wife. It always means to submit to an authority. Again, Grudem points out, in every example we find, when, a person, when person A is said to be subject to person B, person B has a unique authority which person A does not have. Very mathematical. Examples in the New Testament. Here we go, Luke Two, Jesus was subject to his parents. Romans 13, citizens be subject to the government. Luke chapter 10, demons were subject to the disciples. Um, 1 Corinthians, the universe is subject to Christ. Ephesians 5, the church is subject to Christ. James 4, believers are subject to God. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is subject to the Father. And Ephesians 5, wives are subject to their husbands. They willingly submit to their husbands. What does it mean for a Christian wife to be submissive or more practically? What does a wife's submission look like in the home? Well, let me offer some, a, a few practical thoughts. And um, I find these helpful. I hope you find them helpful. We're going to do the same thing with the men next time. And so here we go. And, and by the way, when, when I taught this uh, to the men, when I taught the, the men's version, the, the next, next week's message in Sunday school a number of years back, I was so helped. It's the first time I had ever read anything that was this helpful in just defining what it looks like in, in our context. So first of all, submission is not an absolute surrender of the wife's will. It is not the absolute surrender of the wife's will. Rather, it is a disposition to yield to her husband's authority and an inclination to follow his leadership. Now, this is important because no submission of one human being to another is absolute. It's never absolute. Your only absolute allegiance and submission is to God. The husband does not replace Christ as his wife's supreme authority. 
And man, I hope you'll hear, you're hearing this even before next week, because I'm going to say it again. She must never follow her husband's leadership into sin. That is, she will not steal with him or get drunk with him or savor pornography with him or develop deceptive schemes with him. Remember, the wife's loyalty is first of all to Christ and not to her husband. Nevertheless, she must be careful never to use that principle as a pretense merely to get her own way. Uh, it's amazing how we can turn what appears to be a godly motive into a sinful strategy to get what we want. And it's not just women, it's men too. So it's everybody in this room who's a sinner does that. We need to be careful. But even where a Christian wife may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, she can still have a spirit of submission, a disposition to yield. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and longs for him to forsake his sin and lead her in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again produce harmony. Additionally, her disposition towards submission should not be confused with a requirement to submit to abuse. I've just got to be clear on this, and over the years I've tried to be abundantly clear on this. And there have been occasions, even among relationships with people over the last 26 years, married couples who it came out were being physically abusive and abusive in other ways, but ladies, your husband has been granted authority in the home, but listen carefully, it is a limited, delegated authority. It is delegated to him by God, and it has very clearly defined limits. When, when he uses that authority to justify being abusive, his wife should appeal to the other spiritual authorities in her life, namely the elders of her local church. It's one of 10,000 reasons why every woman ought to be a part of a local church. It gets really, really hopeless and complicated when, when a woman comes and they say, you know, I have this terrible relationship with my husband and he's being abusive. And, and we ask, okay, well, what... What spiritual authorities are over you? Well, I don't go to church. Yikes, that just puts us in a really, really tough spot. Male domination, as we'll see next week, is a, is a personal moral failure that needs to be addressed by the spiritual authorities in that man's life. And that woman, if she's being physically abused especially, needs to be protected. Secondly, and these will go a little more rapidly now, submission communicates respectfully. Piper writes, when a woman addresses her husband personally and directly with an air of superiority, it almost invariably offends and provokes him either to shut down or to fight for his dignity. And for some of you ladies, that may be a revelation. Why does he shut down, or why does he fight? Could it be 
as Piper says, that there is an offense when she personally, personally and directly commands him with a spirit of superiority. Non-directive influence, he writes, however, takes the form of petition, which is gracious questions, persuasion, calm and humble reasoning, rather than instructing, commanding, or threatening. A beautiful example of this in the Bible comes from the story of Abigail, who took David, he talked, she talked David out of killing her good-for-nothing husband, Nabal. And the way she did it was beautiful. You should read it maybe today, 1 Samuel 25. Abigail exerted great influence over David and changed the course of his life and hers forever. But she did it with amazing restraint and submission, submissiveness and discretion. And the Apostle Paul calls for the same approach from wives when he exhorts them on how to influence their husbands. He writes in 1 Peter, I did say Peter, right? 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Thirdly, Submission is prayerful. Submission is prayerful. My wife is out of town right now, and uh, there was a, a big lecture I had to do this week I've been working on and getting ready to record uh, for ACBC, and, uh, and she, she texted me and she said, um, have, you, have you taught yet? And I said, no, and she said, oh, good, I'm praying for you. And that just did something to my heart. <laughs> my wife is praying for me. I love that. Love that. It just makes me want her to come home sooner. It, it, there's something about it that helps unify a husband and wife. One of the most powerful ways to influence your husband is through faithful prayer. James says, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. Pray, pray. Number four, submission treasures children and home. In his letter to Titus, Paul instructs older, more mature wives to encourage younger wives to love their husbands and children, to be sensible, kind, and pure, to be homemakers, and to be submissive to their husbands. This passage represents the most succinct summary of a woman's core roles in the home. This is what defines the term helper in Galatians 2.18. Alexander Strzok is helpful on this when he writes, the core role, uh, he's speaking of wives, is not everything a woman does in marriage. She's not confined only to what Paul describes here but she dare not excuse herself from these responsibilities or neglect them for other ambitions. Like the planets around the sun, everything in marriage should revolve around these crucial core role responsibilities and concerns. A wife's core role should prioritize her commitments 
to her use of energy and time. It should keep her from missing out on what God has called her to do and what, is God, what God has promised to bless her with and through. This is the path of blessing for women. Peter is saying it. Paul is saying it. And Moses said it in Genesis. Far from restricting a woman's life, just think of Proverbs 31. That woman was not restricted. And yet you get the sense that she's the model here. And far from being restricted as a woman, this disposition of godly submission is experienced by Christian wives as freeing, especially when her husband gets in the game and begins leading as he should. And we'll talk about that next time. Well, that's all I wanted to cover today. We'll pick up from here next week and, and talk to the men. But before we close, I just want to give some gospel hope. Because I know that this room is full of sinners. I'm not sure about the room down the hall. <laughs> but this one is full of sinners. And you know what? The man in the pulpit this morning is a sinner. And you, and you, you, know, you know what sin does in a marriage? It causes all kinds of problems. In ways we sin are usually self-centered. They're contrary to the model of Christ and the model of the, of the church as described in Ephesians chapter 5. And I know, I know, because I do a ton of counseling with marriages, I know, I don't know specifics, but I know that if you're married and you're a sinner, you have had some of the most significant pain in your life has come from that relationship. And that may be true even right now. But here's the gospel hope. This, beloved, is the reason Jesus came to die. To deal with our sin problem. Our sin problem is what keeps us out of fellowship with Christ, but it is also what keeps us out of fellowship with one another. I want to read one text that I hadn't planned on. This is dangerous because I may not find it. This is 1 John 1. And here's what he says. This is the message we've heard from the beginning and proclaimed to you. This is verse 5 of chapter 1. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, that means we practice sin. We lie. You're a liar. You're self-deceived, and the truth is not in you. But I think this is the most significant marriage verse in the whole Bible. That's why I wanted to scooch over here. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with... Now, what, would, what word would you insert next? Almost everybody I ask will insert the word God. Let me just read it that way. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God. That sounds right. Sounds right. But it's wrong. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship 
with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know why you don't have fellowship with one another? It's because there's sin. It doesn't matter if you've only contributed 5% of the problem. You've, you have contributed enough to seek forgiveness for. And that forgiveness can only come by the blood of Christ. You don't have the authority to forgive except through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, so won't you just go home and be appropriately introspective and ask yourselves, what's wrong with my marriage? And honestly, what am I contributing to the problem? And own it. Own it to God. And own it to one another. And then the glory that God intended to set on display physically and visibly in your marriage will start to shine again. Paradise lost can be paradise regained. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We know that our love for you is flawed and infinitesimally small compared to your great and awesome love for us. I've never given my life for anyone but you died to save me. So I praise you and bless your name. Teach us, Father, to live that kind of love with one another and to own it, to repent and keep on repenting in marriage, to repent and keep on repenting with our children, repent and keep on repenting with those who are parts of our church. Lord, we want our light to so shine before men that they will see the glory of God in us and desire to know this precious Savior. So we ask you to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.